Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Our very first guest on Pioneers and Pathfinders was Dr. Heidi Gardner. Heidi, an economist by training, is a distinguished fellow at Harvard Law School's Center on the Legal Profession. She also teaches at both Harvard Law School and Harvard Business School. In addition to those gigs, she founded and runs her own consultancy, Gardner & Company. In our first conversation, we not only talked about her journey and how she got involved in studying the legal profession, we also discussed her book, Smart Collaboration. Smart Collaboration is a data-driven look at the business case for effective collaboration. It was a really interesting conversation and a great way to kick off the podcast. Well, Heidi has a new book, Smarter Collaboration. The new book, co-authored with Ivan Matfiak, extends her research on the topic with case studies and research on the effective use of collaboration, as well as pitfalls and how to avoid them. I caught up with Dr. Gardner to talk about the new book and the work she's been doing in the last year and three quarters. We covered a wide range of topics, the impact on the trust relationship based on pandemic-caused remote work, how organizations can avoid over-collaboration, how we can better collaborate with third parties, among a variety of other interesting topics. I hope you find the conversation as informative as did I. Thanks for listening. Heidi, thank you so much for making the time to join us again. I'm so pleased to be back with you. So apart from writing a new book, what have you been up to in the last 20 months between client work and teaching? Yes, absolutely. So I am still on faculty at Harvard. I'm teaching in the executive programs at both Harvard Business School and Harvard Law School. And I am running my own advisory business and uh, doing proprietary research and advisory work for not just law firms, but professional service firms and other kinds of corporates around the world and keeping up with the research and trying to keep a steady stream of publications going. And uh, now we're about to launch into the book promotion. So it's keeping me on my toes and out of trouble. (laughs) It sounds like it. We talked a little bit about sort of your teaching at Harvard and both in the business school and the law school and the synergy that you saw between the two of them. In the context of collaboration, how does one feed off of the other for you? It's really important that there's cross-pollination between the professional services sector and the kinds of businesses and NGOs and government agencies that they're serving. And by teaching at both the business and the law school, as well as all the consulting work that I do outside of Harvard, it really allows me to be up to my elbows in understanding where are the collaboration challenges and what can we learn from one sector and export to the other as well as where do we see some of the most important innovations happening that can aid in collaboration. Some of those are technological, some of those are based on behavioral science, and some of those are kind of good old-fashioned consulting interventions that allow people to understand a different part of the world and adopt what works for them. Absolutely. You're keeping your finger in all those pies. That's awesome. One of the things we talked about in our first episode was an article you had just written to put it in context for our listeners because time seems a little little hard concept to grasp sometimes these days. We were still in the depths of the pandemic and you'd written an article about the impact of the pandemic on the erosion of trust. Remind our listeners sort of what the point was and then bring us up to date as your thoughts on how the pandemic, the easing of it, the people going back to work, 
How has that changed or impacted that trust dynamic? Well, certainly, Steve, what we were seeing back in the depths of the pandemic is a huge amount of uncertainty and a lot of fear. And both of those wreak havoc with people's ability to make themselves vulnerable. And making oneself vulnerable to, say, colleagues or one's boss is really the essence of trust. If I allow myself, expose myself as having some kind of weakness where I need help or questions or even areas where I say, I'm not the expert here, let me team up with somebody who is, any of those asks can seem quite risky. And if I open myself up in those ways to colleagues, it opens the door for us to build trust. But when we are incredibly stressed out, and I don't know a single soul on the planet who wasn't stressed during those times of COVID, it's really hard for us to exhibit those kinds of behaviors. And what we saw, I was writing with my colleague, Dr. Mark Mortensen. He's a professor at INSEAD in Fontainebleau, France. And we had separately observed in a lot of work that we were doing and then followed through in our research how much trust had eroded during the times when people were working from home and and didn't have that physical connection with one another. And we laid out a few steps that people could take, whether they were the boss or whether they were the employee, to start to rebuild some of that trust. And I would say, bringing us up to the present, we are still in the process of rebuilding trust. And there is a lot of work to be done And yet, I'm ever the optimist. I think that we can get there. One of the questions, particularly for the legal industry, is this physical proximity of working. Do you continue remote working because people don't want to commute and they want the time with their kids? Do you have them come into the office? Is there a hybrid workplace? And I think the trend certainly is towards having people come into the office, at least partially. What's your view on the the importance of in-person connection on the trust element? Do people need to be in working in the office or are there ways where they can build this relationship virtually? I think need is a strong word. We have plenty of examples of people who have built productive, trusting relationships who have never actually been in the same room together. But does it help? I'll say yes. And I think most of us have had that experience where we've had a few, call it Zoom meetings or telephone calls with an individual, perhaps trying to build a relationship if they're a client. And then we have the opportunity to meet them in person. Maybe it's at a conference, maybe you know we go out to dinner together, something like that. And it's remarkable how much easier and smoother and frankly, more fun the follow-on conversations are after we've had that in-person meeting. I think a lot of people relate to this. Now, there are plenty of people for whom that's not true. People who are extreme introverts or people with social anxiety or people who for a whole variety of very legitimate reasons strongly prefer to work in the safety of their own home. And for those individuals, I think we need to be as understanding and empathetic and inclusive as possible and try to find ways so that they're not left behind. And that's a real job for leaders these days is to try to strike the right balance of flexibility for individuals who cannot come into the office or feel like they cannot come into the office versus those who simply prefer not to for the convenience factor. Because ultimately, I do think that when we have the chance to get people together in person, there's some real sparks that happen. There's some real magic in terms of serendipitous encounters and the sense we have of somebody 
truly listening and paying attention to us. It's easier to sense that, I think, oftentimes when you're in person. And that's where the trust can begin to strengthen. And I hope people will take the opportunity to go into the offices at the right interval on the cadence that works for them. You know, your your point about serendipity, I've heard that theme from a number of our guests, particularly early on in the pandemic. I remember we were talking to Kat Moon at Vanderbilt, and it was asking her what pieces of the live teaching did she miss the most at the time? And she said it was these serendipitous moments where, you know, a student would come up after class and just ask a question or just somehow make that connection, which are hard to replicate. I can see it are hard to replicate virtually. Yes, absolutely. I think what many of us miss is not the meeting itself, but the four minutes that you're hanging around in the meeting room, filling up your coffee or, you know, the six minute walk from the meeting out to the parking lot. Or, you know, I think I've heard from so many people that they miss the opportunity to have those side conversations, which really humanize us. Because if you and I are sitting in a Zoom room waiting for the formal agenda to start and there's nine other boxes on screen, it just feels a little awkward to me to ask you about your family, even about your weekend. It just feels performative as opposed to personal. And we need that kind of connection because loneliness is an epidemic. There are so many people these days who are surrounded by other people in a work sense, you know, on a Zoom type meeting or, you know, perhaps even in person. But the disconnect between having people around you versus really enjoying their company and getting to know them on a personal level and feeling some mutual support the disconnect between them can be really disabling. And that's where a strong sense of loneliness comes from. And before anyone sort of rolls their eyes and goes, oh yeah, that's the sort of soft stuff. Let's be clear, loneliness in loads of scientific studies has been linked to all kinds of adverse health effects like lower immune system and higher risk of cardiovascular disease and a whole bunch of very, very, very serious adverse effects. This is not just a happy, clappy, let's all you know hold hands and get along kind of movement. This is very serious for people's health outcomes and for people who don't have the opportunity to connect with one another at that human level because they're in the same room. We need to find ways that they can make those connections in a meaningful way. Absolutely. You know, your, your point about People thinking this is a soft issue sort of brings me back to a part of the conversation we had over your first book, Smart Collaboration, where collaboration is often thought of as a soft issue. It's a squishy thing, and yet you managed to really create a huge amount of data and research among your first book to demonstrate the benefits of collaboration and particularly what you call smart collaboration. Remind our viewers what the sort of the basic themes were of that book, and then we're going to bring it forward to your your new book, which is Smarter Collaboration, which is out November 1. Absolutely. So, you know, this idea that collaboration is a soft skill drives me bonkers. So we put math and science and data analytics behind the study of collaboration to demonstrate really clearly through robust empirical methods that collaboration isn't a soft skill. It's how real work, the most valuable work, actually gets accomplished. And so by smart collaboration, we mean bringing together people who have different bases of expertise 
so that they see a challenge or an opportunity from their own unique, deeply skilled lens. And they're able and open to combining that perspective with other people so that they can tackle more complex problems than any of them could do on their own. And what we can demonstrate, again, with the data behind it, that organizations and teams and individuals who engage in that kind of smart collaboration, they're more productive, they generate higher revenues and profits, the organizations are much better at attracting, engaging, and retaining top talent. They're more innovative, not just faster innovation, but higher impact innovation, and they lower enterprise risk. So there's something in it for everyone. And yet, ironically, we still are having this conversation five years after my first book came out because it's deeply, deeply difficult to execute. So part of things you've been doing since we've been talking is writing a new book, Smarter Collaboration. As we record this episode, it's out tomorrow, November 1st. So tell us a little bit about the book. How does it add to the science of collaboration? What are the basic themes? Walk our readers through it a little bit. Give them a little taste for what they're in for. So Steve, whereas the first book really focused a lot on the rationale for collaboration, thank goodness we're past the point where most well-informed leaders and partners in firms are no longer asking the why should I bother question. Most of the questions now are, how do we capture those advantages? How do we actually engage in smarter collaboration so that we can become more whatever your outcome is strategically, whether that is a financial outcome or an operational outcome or a talent-related outcome? And so the work that we've been doing in the intervening five years has been crystallizing a lot of the how-tos. And so we've engaged in lots of deep hands-on work and research with a variety of different kinds of organizations so that we could produce a book that is intensely practical. It's filled with case studies. And of course, you know me, it's filled with data and analytics as well to back up that what we can observe in a case study is actually a pattern that gets replicated again and again under the right conditions. And so the first part of the book, we still have two chapters in the beginning devoted to the business case and the talent case for collaboration, because there are some people who are still asking the why question or the what's in it for me question is pretty typical. But beyond that, then we've got the how to's laid out first with helping people understand what specifically they are up against in terms of challenges and helping them identify places where smarter collaboration is already helping people reap the advantages and very systematic, robust ways to engage in that investigation so that you're not solving the wrong problem. Because in as much as we see the same five or six or seven barriers very typically arise across law firms, across professional services, across corporates, et cetera, the prevalence and the importance of those barriers is radically different. And so in one organization that we worked with recently, interpersonal trust was a huge barrier. They'd had a history of infighting and politics and very contentious leadership challenges and so forth. And interpersonal trust was very low. Partners didn't actually believe that their fellow colleagues had their back. And it was pretty poisonous environment. And we needed to embark on a very serious set of culture change and, and leadership changes to help that firm survive and thrive. But other places, you have a very different set of issues at play. Sometimes it's compensation. Sometimes it is a sheer lack of capabilities to engage in the kind of deep discussions or leadership that is required in order to, to set the stage for smarter collaboration. 
So the first section after the business case and the talent case is diagnosing the organization to figure out what the issues are. And then we have a long section with chapters, each one devoted to a different use case. So for organizations that are growing very rapidly, say through mergers and acquisitions, what do they need to think about in terms of embedding collaboration across the legacy firms? For firms where compensation did turn out to be one of the bigger challenges and blockers of collaboration, how are they going to address that? Or you know, a whole range of other different scenarios that each have a chapter in the research and the case studies behind them to let people know how to proceed. And then part of the fun part is wrapping up with how not to's. So we have documented over the years a whole range of myths and missteps that people engage in with collaboration. One of those, for example, is the belief that if collaboration is good, more collaboration must be better. And indeed, it really traps people in this cycle of overcommitment and over collaboration without the right kinds of means or ends in mind. And that can be super counterproductive. You know, let's put a pin in that because I want to come back to that here in a second because I live part of my life in in an environment like that. But I'm curious about the research methodology underlying this. It's such a broad topic and it can take so many different paths, I would suspect, just from listening to you describe it. How do you think through how to create the underlying research methodology to support this kind of endeavor? It sounds like something good that could take 100 years. Nah, it only took 20. <laughs> so I've really been at this. I left McKinsey in 2002 to start pursuing this line of research. I went to London Business School for my PhD. So it's been exactly 20 years and a couple of months that I've been working on this problem. And very much, Steve, if I didn't have a PhD from a top institution with a very, very strong backing in research methodology and statistics and you know a whole range of different techniques, I couldn't do the kind of research I'm doing. You know, it's multi-method. It is highly statistical and quantitative and analytical, which requires, you know, one sort of skill set, but it's also qualitative. And we use surveys, open-ended surveys, we use a lot of interview methodology, and we're able to look at not just the how much question, which is what you get when you do quantitative research, but also the when doesn't this happen by using a lot of control variables and so forth. And then we're able to piece together through qualitative research methodologies why certain things lead to different outcomes, even though they appear to be similar on the surface. And so putting those different research methodologies together has truly been a a major collaborative effort. I certainly didn't do this myself. Over the years, I've had a whole variety of researchers working with me, some of whom were mathematicians or economists or experts in qualitative research. And we were able to bring these different disciplines together and really role model this idea of smarter collaboration in action. We couldn't have done this. Any one of us, we could not have done it on our own. A perfect example of practicing what you preach. Yeah. I know you've studied a number of different types of companies and every company is unique and every company has its own culture. But are there themes that you get that are different between professional services firms and tech companies or law firms and accounting firms? Are there common elements and common differences between them? Obviously, a lot of our listeners are in the legal industry and so are interested in what's what's unique about 
the law firm environment. Well, one of the things that people rightly point to at first about the the law firm or a, a partnership model is that people are accountable to the shareholders who essentially are themselves. And so that makes a big difference in terms of the way investment decisions are considered, people's timeline and risk tolerance uh, when they're essentially, you know, gambling with their own money and the pressure that they do or don't put on themselves to increase the pace of innovation. And so there's, you know, there are certainly differences amongst the partnership models that I've studied and worked with. But by and large, I think that idea of having the producer, manager, owner hats on, all of them at the same time really drives a lot of the culture inside many law firms. What I will say, though, is, you know, I'm presently working with a range of different organizations. Yes, some law firms, some accounting firms, some consulting, so, you know, uh, and engineering. So three different areas of business services or professional services, but also organizations in the energy industry and in semiconductors and in retail and consumer products. So I, you know, I have the privilege right now of working with this whole array of different kinds of companies and organizations. And I would say, surprisingly, the similarities are far greater than the differences across those different industries. Well, people are people after all. Absolutely. You know, people are people. And I think more and more, there is a convergence of some of the same kinds of pressures. And so wherefore, you know, perhaps quite some decades, you had law firms, at least in the U.S., that were more insulated from some of the, the trends, whether that was the merger craze and consolidation that swept other industries long before it started becoming popular in the legal sphere, whether it was lateral hiring. I mean, you know, it's actually relatively recent that it has not been a taboo to switch from one firm to another as a partner. And you think about that is so different than certain industries that you're serving, you know, as your clients. And so there have been, you know, a host of changes in law firms more recently that brings them probably closer in line with the pressures and I'd say the opportunities that your clients are facing, whereas before I think there was a bigger divide. No, absolutely. Let's move to the over-collaboration challenge. Take a hypothetical business unit that has fallen into that trap where it's become almost cultural to have you know lots of people on a phone or a Zoom call or a meeting on the theory that as you've said, if some collaboration is good, more must be better, which is the way a lot of people think, I think. How do you go about breaking that cycle? Because once it becomes cultural and once it becomes an expectation of people, it's sometimes difficult to sort of peel that back. How do you do that? Well, first, I'd say it's really critical to understand why it's happening. And what we've uncovered in our research is that there are often really well-intentioned decisions that actually backfire. And so first I would say, you know, figure out why it's happening. Is there a perceived risk of not being in the room? You know, like the Hamilton song, you know, in the room where it happens. Is it because decisions get taken in that room that don't get socialized or that there's no other legitimate way to have input unless you're kind of physically present? Is that part of the issue? In which case, 
your resolution then might be to think about a process of, you know, collecting inputs and socializing decisions such that people don't feel like they actually need to sit there for an hour or a day to be part of the decision-making process. Another issue, and it's one that's quite sad, actually, is we've identified overcommitment as an outcome of very aspirational diversity and inclusion objectives. And so what we're seeing is that in some organizations, they have a very strong and kind of well-perceived notion that if they get different voices onto, call it a client service team, that they're going to result in a better outcome. And generally, that's true. The problem, however, is that if you only have a certain number, I'm going to use a term diverse lawyers, um, you know, you might call it underrepresented groups, et cetera. But if you have a certain group that call it only represent a small portion percentage of your partnership, but you want enough of that kind of person on every single client service team, I mean, do the math. It simply means that every one of those individuals is going to be in high demand and probably the outcome will be overcommitment on their part. They're asked to serve on a whole bunch of pitch teams and a whole bunch of client service teams and a whole bunch of other market-facing initiatives or recruiting or DEI committees, et cetera. And so the idea is, hey, let's get a better outcome for our client by bringing in somebody with this different perspective. And then what happens is that person gets pigeonholed because if they only have a short amount of time to basically plug and play into all of these different things they're doing, you're not getting their creativity. You're not creating space for them to challenge the status quo. And they suffer because... They also don't get exposure to important client relationships. It's hard for them to get the face time they deserve, even for the work that they're putting in, or to have other people understand how good their work is. And therefore, they might be lacking on coaching and sponsorship. Or you might just have those people getting burned out. Because when any of us are overcommitted, it takes a significantly greater energy base for us to handle those multiple commitments than it would if we were able to, to break those apart and focus more deeply and authentically on fewer pieces of work at any given time. That makes complete sense. It's sort of good intentions sometimes don't lead to the right results that you're, that you're hoping for. Yes, absolutely. One of the other topics I've heard you talk about is the challenges of collaborating with people external to the organization, whether they be external, other companies themselves, or former colleagues that have left to go somewhere else. Talk to us a little bit about that challenge, particularly in the context of this quiet quitting, this turnover, this challenge of the labor market these days, which maybe is changing as the economy changes. I don't know. But put it in context for us. Absolutely. The idea of bringing people together who are in the same organization and different functions or departments or practice groups is hard enough. But when you want to access those kinds of experts or different voices and they reside outside the firm, that adds in a whole new set of challenges, but a massive number of opportunities. And so we devote part of the book, um, one of the chapters on the talent case for collaboration, we dive into the opportunities to create boomerangs. And so, you know, a boomerang is an employee who had been part of the organization, whether as a partner, associate, a professional support staff, et cetera, and somebody who had been part of the firm, 
left for whatever reason. Maybe it was to go in-house. Maybe it was to go to a competitor. Maybe it was to take time out of the workforce, et cetera. And then bringing them back in as productive members of the firm is a massive opportunity. And I say that because I was at McKinsey for five years before I left to do my PhD. And it was a very deliberate talent strategy to engage with people in ways such that they left as a friend of the firm. And in those days, you know, more often than not, went to a client or a prospective client and ended up working with McKinsey down the road at some point. And now what is becoming an even bigger opportunity for many organizations is not just to convert the former employee into a future client, but then ultimately to bring them back inside the organization after they've had the opportunity to experience a different culture or learn about client service from the buyer side or experience a different industry and how technology is changing you know, the workforce so quickly elsewhere. Capitalizing on those different experiences that people have had while they've been away from the firm and then creating the context for them to come back and thrive is a huge source of competitive advantage for companies that get it right. And one of the case studies we use in our book is City. And there's some phenomenal statistics in the book about how much money City saves on every boomerang employee versus an employee that they would source from the larger labor pool. And it adds up to an eye-popping number. And so we're able to offer some, based on case studies and other research we've done, we're able to offer law firms and other companies ways to think about what it takes to send people out you know, when they leave the organization as a friend, such that they would consider coming back. And then critically important, how do you set them up for success when they do? Because they're not coming back into the same company that they left X years ago, and they too have changed. So there's a lot to think about in terms of getting those boomerangs set up for success. And then, you know, we have a whole chapter as well on inter-organizational collaboration. And anytime you're talking about people coming and going and working across organizational boundaries, there is immense potential upside that we often see people failing to capitalize on. And that's where we dig in. Yeah. In my current role, I work a lot with external organizations. We bring into particular projects or they bring a skill set that we don't want to have in-house or, or whatever it may be. One of the challenges I found is a lot of times they work differently than we do, or they interact with each other and with us differently than we interact with each other. And it creates inefficiency into the ability to draw on the best of them. Do you talk in your book about how to sort of counteract that, how to do that investigation up front to make sure at least the cultural underpinnings are similar enough that you can work collaboratively? Absolutely. You know, and whether you're thinking about a merger or an acquisition or a third party alliance, doing that cultural due diligence is absolutely essential. And yet what we find is it often gets short shrift because the things that are more easily quantified appear to be higher value. And actually, they're just easier to quantify. They're not more important. And so, yes, across different chapters, we talk about how to engage in that kind of due diligence. We focus, of course, on the collaborative aspect. How do you know that another organization is as invested in collaboration as you are? Also, the whole point of smarter collaboration is to start with the end in mind. Right. Collaboration isn't a goal in itself. It's simply a way to achieve better outcomes on high value pieces of work. 
And starting with the end in mind is really crucial. And it is often, it's certainly not overlooked, you know, any kind of alliance, any venture, any contractual arrangement where two organizations are working together, there will be some sort of statement of work or some formalistic way of getting people on the same page. But I don't think leaders typically spend enough time on that. What they really need to work on is some of the sticky points that you raised. How do people interact? How do you get people not just signing up to the same ultimate outcome, but thinking about what that outcome really means? How does that play out? How do they interpret it? And what kinds of trade-offs are they willing to make at the margins or at the center in order to achieve that outcome? And leaders in their haste to get on board and get some quick results and get the process moving, I think at their peril, will skip some of those important questions. I think there's also a reluctance sometimes that having those conversations will be a bit awkward and create friction right up front in the relationship. And what I'd say is any friction that gets unearthed and resolved in the beginning is worth so much of the time and the energy that it takes. Because if there's friction there, it will come out at some point and you kind of want to hit it on the head sooner rather than later. That's a great point. That certainly resonates with me in terms of my experience. Absolutely. Well, Heidi, we've run out of time. For our listeners, the book is Smarter Collaboration, which I'm presuming is on Amazon. And by the time this episode is up, it should have been out and hopefully to a rousing reception. There'll be a link in the show notes to both Gardner and Company, to the link to the book. And I want to say thank you for your time again. And good luck with the book and the book tour. Thank you so much. It was great speaking with you again. Lots of fun. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.